in these periods, we don't reshape the outer world of infrastructure, politics, and the economy. We reshape the inner world. Boomers and older are the most likely to say it's too strong, relax it. The last decade of this, of this period would be when most of the action happens. This one isn't going to be stopped by, um, you know, Christine Lagarde saying whatever it takes. Even though the world finds itself in various states of lockdown, the wheels of the global economic machine continue to turn, albeit at an ever slowing rate. In this series of conversations, I'm joined by some of the best and brightest minds it's been my pleasure to befriend over the last 35 years to try and gain some insight as to what we can expect the coming months to bring. Will equity and bond markets bounce back? Does a blizzard of multi-trillion dollar stimulus packages mean that central banks have finally reached the end of the road? And if so, what happens next? Is the world facing an even greater depression? Or is a return to the inflationary spiral our likely future? from markets to mortgages, from policy to politics, and everything in between. Please join me for the 2020 Humanar series. The final episode in part two of the 2020 Humanar series featured the co-author of The Fourth Turning and one of the finest demographers of our era, Neil Howe. I've been incredibly fortunate in recent years to have spent a fair amount of time with Neil, and I've always left those conversations feeling smarter about the world around me, but also in possession of a ton of new questions for which I felt I needed to seek out answers. Neil's work on demographics is incredibly important, and the means by which he applies it to his investment framework has been hugely valuable to me over the years. So please welcome my friend Neil Howe. So you are uh, you are right now where, Grant? I am in the Cayman Islands, of all places. Physical location. Uh, yeah, physical location, Cayman Islands. Um, we've been locked Got down it. fully for eight weeks here. Um, I'm only allowed out on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays, which is a kind of strange world to be in. Wow. Well, I can think of worse places to be locked down in, but then again, um, I'm here in the. <laughs> I'm here in the. Virginia suburbs of Washington, D.C., and um, uh, we're opening up around here. So a lot more people out now. We monitor this uh, constantly, you know, through Google GPS and so on. Yeah. But we're looking at definitely uh, people back in the parks, a little bit in retail, not much in workplace yet, but it's happening. You know, it's funny. Someone's just asking the, in the chat, can I go to the beach? And the answer has been has been no for five weeks the beaches were closed here and so once you do that in the Cayman Islands there is nowhere else to go here yeah so for the last five weeks it's been miserable they've opened the beaches up a little bit again now uh which helps but um it's just a strange strange twilight world Neil and and you know this this twilight world that we're in is part of a much broader um twilight world that that you kind of described many many years ago um, it was a world with which people, unless they'd read history, wouldn't be familiar. And I suspect many would have thought um, implausible at best, impossible at worst. But yet many of the things that uh, you and Bill talked about in the fourth turning um, are kind of happening. So I, I think that, that what I'd love to do uh, initially, because there will be people, amazingly, that haven't kind of uh, seen your work before. So I'd love to get a framework 
or the fourth turning just so we can kind of flesh it out and then maybe we'll dig into to where we are in that process and and what may happen from here and some of the signs you'll see right um, <clears throat> well the 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 fourth turning as a, as a paradigm for looking at history really started with uh, a book that Bill and I wrote back in 1991. We worked on it in the late 1980s. Um, we, uh, it was unclear what we were looking for <laughs> when we first wrote that book. Uh, we, were, uh, um, uh, we were interested in uh, generational endowments. Why do some generations focus on certain things during their lifetime and want, you know, typically endow those kinds of things, whether they're, you know, great civic projects or great works of literature, you know, whatever they do, certain generations tend to focus more on some things than others. And uh, boomers, uh, as we are, uh, we're all aware that uh, our life had been so differently than, you know, worked out so differently in terms of our overall worldview than our GI generation parents. Uh, you know, they came of age with the uh, with D-Day and Iwo Jima, they spent their young adulthood building families and battleships and things like that. And boomers came of age with Woodstock you know, and wanted to find themselves. Well, that's a, that's a real contrast, right, uh, for, for two generations. And we had wanted to know what causes that historically. Uh, and so we went back and looked uh, all the way back to the 17th century, you know, back into colonial America. And what we found is that, yes, generations have always been different throughout American history. That People have always been aware of generational differences. People are shaped young by history, and they develop in very different ways than the generation just before them. And we also noticed, uh, I grant, that uh, these, these generational differences are not random. Certain kinds of generations always follow yeah. other kinds of generations. Um, uh, you know, typically uh, a generation like boomers, for instance, you know, idealistic, crusading, you know, lashing out against the institutions of their parents for their great injustices are always followed by a very kind of wasted, cynical, pragmatic generation. You know, there's always that contrast. You know, it's, it's sort of like, uh, uh, you know, following the Puritans came Prince Rupert, you know, and all of the cavalier generation, you know. Yeah you know, to hell with you, right? You know, we're going to celebrate everything you hate. Uh, but so, so we find these differences throughout history, and they are actually connected with some of the great um, uh, historical uh, turning points that people have noticed. And that is certainly in American history, and this kind of overlaps a little bit with, ang you know, Anglo-American history, is the, the great civic turning points uh, where we sort of reconstituted our concept of who we were as a nation politically uh, in terms of what we are as a community, in terms of our political purpose, infrastructure, all the rest. And one, one big turning point when the colonies were still part of, of Britain sort of expanded was the Glorious Revolution, the War of Spanish Succession. And then about, a, about a 90 years later, 80, 90 years later, came the American Revolution. 80, 90 years later became the Civil War. And then the same period of time came uh, the Great Depression and World War II, and then the same period of life, which we call in our work a saculum, which is an old Etruscan word, meaning a long human life, brings us up to today, Grant. Here we are. <laughs> here we are. Here we are. And, and we noticed, actually, that halfway in between these great civic turning points are the great awakenings in American history, and we actually number them. 
uh, in American history, we call them the first great awakening, the second great awakening. And, you know, you can go back with John Winthrop uh, and, and, and talk about, you know, the, the city on a hill, sort of the first awakening. I mean, uh, the, the great migration to, uh, to New England in the 1630s, about, you know, I don't know, 10, 20,000 um, highly educated Puritans <laughs> and followers coming over to New England uh, was a very particular generation uh, and, and uh, uh, kind of set their stamp early on what America was going to look like. Um, these awakening periods, uh, you know, for, again, from the 17th century on to the 1960s and 70s, which some historians actually call America's fifth great awakening, right? Um, uh, are very different from these great civic turning points because in these periods we don't reshape the outer world of, of infrastructure, politics, and the economy. We reshape the inner world, you know, of culture, values, music, language, how we talk, how we, you know, renew the interior rather than renew the exterior. So this yin and yang development, you can see how this could, from this you know, be either coming of age during one of these periods or being children in one of these periods could give rise to an actual typology of different kinds of generations. And how generations shape the young as they grow older shape history, which in turn shape the young. So there's a kind of a cycle here. Yeah. And what we find is that, is that almost uh, uh, always, in fact, the generation born right after the uh, last crisis uh, is typically a, a prophet archetype. They come of age in the awakening, and they always are the senior leadership generation when America enters the, the next crisis. So the, the boomer generation, this is not, this has always been the case. I mean, FDR was part of the post-Civil War generation that came of age during the Third Great Awakening. Abraham Lincoln was part of the post-American Revolution generation that came of age during uh, the second grade, you, you see how this works. And so this yeah, highly yeah. moralistic values-focused generation are always the elder leaders of the crisis. That already gives you an idea of why it goes so badly, <laughs> at least at first. <laughs> um, and, and these are the, the gray champions you know, of, of the leadership era. And then you have a, typically a, a generation in between. This would be Gen Xers. These were the kids who are children during the awakening. They're always throwaway kids. <laughs> That's always a pattern. Yeah, there we go. I, I know you're a little nodding there, Grant. But, you know, these are the kids who basically had to make do on themselves. They tend to have very weak uh, connection to civic life. Uh, to, to this kind of generation, it's all up to the individual, right? Uh, you know, it's up to you. You know, we're, a favorite extra expression is it works for me. You know, I don't really care if it works for everyone else. <laughs> But this is so that you can see how this alone creates a problem. Boomers invent the new individualism. Xers kind of grow up in it, absorb it, and actually live it and thrive in it, or at least try to thrive in it. Certainly, it's a very risky world for them as individuals. And then you have this generation coming along after them, what we call the civic archetype or the hero archetype, who were born just after the awakening, usually a highly protected generation as children, and they become the next hero archetype, and they're usually much more oriented toward community behavior, community norms, uh, and they they actually want to empower the community, not to tear it down. 
and we see all of those generational layers playing out right now uh, during the pandemic lockdown. And it's fascinating to watch. Yeah, you know, and that's what I wanted to get into because, um, you know, it's funny, I've, I've read The Fourth Turning twice. I've spent time, uh, very luckily for me, alone with you talking about this stuff. I've, I've watched you talk about it. And it's interesting, I never get tired of hearing that backstory. It, it, there's, some, there's a little something in it every time I hear it that, that kind of gets the synapses flying. And, and you know, you, you ended there perfectly with, with the COVID world, which we're in now. And so I guess, you know, really a, a kind of sliding doors moment for me here is that it felt like we were we were into the fourth turning. Um, it was it was questionable as to how deep we got into it. But I, I'm curious to know really the two parts, how you how you think things may have gone absent COVID and how you think COVID has either accelerated that process or perhaps put it on a slightly different path. Well, what, what a turning era does, and it just to remind readers, each turning lasts a generation. So it lasts about 20 to 25 years. You know, I mean, it, it's, it's a long era. Yeah. It's not a single event. So people sometimes talk about, you know, that the fourth turning is a crisis. No, the fourth turning is an era, which has crises in it, right? That's, that's the yeah. way I look at it. Um, but, but, but I would say that the fourth turning, because you have a, and remember just generational forgetting. The generation that knew how to uh, build and run uh, large institutions, large civic institutions effectively, that came of age with the last crisis, right, yeah. uh, is gone now. <laughs> They're completely gone. And even the generation that was children during the last crisis, the silent generation, born in, you know, mostly in the 1930s, is basically pretty much out of out of power. They're sort of fading. They're no longer in leadership. We only have yeah. a, we only have a couple congressmen left who remember World War II. I mean, Mitch McConnell, Nancy Pelosi, maybe. I mean, these are the older end of leader. And we have a, actually yeah. on the Democratic yeah. side, we have a few more on the House. <laughs> we have a we have a very <laughs> elder leadership on the House and the in the in the uh, on the on the Democratic side. Um, uh, but they but they're basically gone too. So all of that knowledge, and this basically is an ancient idea. This was actually uh, proposed by Ibn Khaldun as the sort of the Muslim historian back in the you know, 15th century. Uh, but Arnold Toynbee also noticed this. The reason that large crises are often you know, nearly a century apart, he noticed this in the ancient world, was that idea of generational forgetting. You know, the generation that took you through the last one is gone. The generation that don't re doesn't remember how bad it can get and has no idea about how to prepare for the next one, uh, basically exploits all the goodies that the new institutions created, but has no idea how to prepare for the next one. I mean, the CDC is a great example. Uh, the Center for you know, Disease Control uh, was originally uh, formulated just after World War II as the uh, U.S. defense, uh, I can't remember the exact phrase, but it's something like U.S. Defense Task Force on Malaria Control or something like that. And gradually right. afterward, right. it became the, the uh, uh, Task Force on Communicable Diseases. It was all oriented. How does America survive a really bad communicable disease? And that was a time when we used to have very large uh, uh, public health agencies in America. During the polio vaccine, we had teams of people go house to house in the 1950s. You know, during, before we developed the polio vaccine, we had teams going from house to house to track down uh, uh, polio victims and who they might have had in contact with someone uh, with. 
it's completely disappeared. You know, no one cares about public yeah. health anymore. Yeah, Marigo vaccines and who cares about that anymore? And you know, that's yeah. just a hypothetical. Um, so basically the CDC goes on to much broader agendas about, you know, race and gender and uh, uh, guns and school violence, you know, all kinds of other agendas, kind of uh, agenda creep, you might say. But the basic function of preparing for the next national pandemic disaster went way down on its list. Yeah, we have vaccines for all that stuff, right? And here we are, right? <laughs> Nothing yeah, stockpiled, I no preparation. Well, this is classic in a, in a case like this. And, and I see this play out in, in generational attitudes. What's absolutely fascinating to me, uh, Grant, is that uh, the age differences in uh, the reaction to public policy, right? Uh, if you wanna, if yeah. you go and ask people, is the, uh, is the lockdown policy is a good idea? Should it be weaker or stronger? Interestingly, boomers and older are the most likely to say it's too strong, relax it, let people go back to work, you know, to hell with all that stuff. Millennials under age 30 are the most likely to say it should be tighter. And interestingly, they say it should be national. It should be a national policy, not state by state discretion. Boomers that's, are that's more than 20 percentage that. points more likely to say states should have their own discretion to do whatever the hell they want. And what's fascinating about this is it directly goes against personal interests. I mean, millennials are yeah. least likely to get the disease. They're certainly least likely to die from it. And they're most likely to be unemployed now because right. of the lockdown yeah, policy. Yet they are most likely to advocate a strict national policy to actually show that the community, uh, the community has efficacy in dealing with this problem. And I see this, this constantly. You go out and look at the protesters, you know, they're all worried about the deep state. The millennial question is, where the hell is the deep state when we want it? You know, <laughs> where is it? You know, hey, let's have it do its job. I mean, what the hell happened to that thing, you know? It, yeah, that, so that, that's this fascinating is, to me because this is, no, I was just saying that that's completely the other way around as I would have imagined it. Yeah, it's it's a reversal, and and as you know, uh, Grant, I'm fascinated with with age bracket reversals, because if you had gone back in the in the late '60s or say mid '70s, and you we had had a pandemic, you know, let's just play a little hypothetical history here. Uh, let's say we had a big pandemic. Which age bracket at that time would have been advocating strict national policies? Everyone get on their uniforms. You know, we're going to the president on down, top-down nationals. It would have been older people. It would have been the GI generation. Yeah. They've been through World War II. Let's do it again. You know, let's let's. Yeah. And it would have been boomers saying, "Kiss my ass," right? Just right. are you kidding me? So that's what I find fascinating. In other words, we find reversal of what we would have expected by age bracket. And, and you know me long enough, Grant, to know that I'm fascinated by age bracket reversals because they always indicate generational change. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's very interesting because we are at that, at that point. To, to your point, it's so true that the millennial generation is undoubtedly, if you take out, just take the hit to the stock market valuation aside, uh, it, we'll get to that later on because that's going to affect boomers far more. But but in terms of societal impact, it is absolutely the millennials who who are going to be impacted by this. And how do you think this will change the millennials? Because it's I guess it's really the first time 
in their lives that they have been confronted by a sense that they can't be protected by their parents or society or whatever. They've, they've, they've been fortunate to grow up in that sweet spot where, and I'm the parent of millennials, I'm as guilty as everybody in, in cosseting my kids. What does, what does this do to the millennial mindset, do you think? Well, one way to think about millennials, and again, this also is an inversion from thinking about boomers. Um, boomers often had a real problem getting along with their parents personally, but yeah. they trusted their parents to run the system. In fact, the whole boomer problem with the GI generation is they ran the system too well. It worked too well, you know. It forced us all into these little boxes and, you know, it gave us too much GDP and it was ruining the world because it was too much affluence, too much, you know, whatever it was, it was too much. It worked too well. We wanted to just stop the damn thing, right? Break it down. <laughs> we didn't want a big middle class. That was too equal. I mean, everything that we complain about today was the opposite, right? And with millennials, it's interesting because millennials, it's really reversed. Millennials actually get along personally very well with their ex and boomer parents, very close to them. You see them now moving back into households. We've seen this sudden, by the way, this, the, the size of households, the number of adults per household had been growing throughout the entire recovery. Contrary to everyone's predictions, you know, everyone kept on saying, well, you know, when are millennials yeah. going to, you know, get out of their parents' basement and move out? And it, it never happened. It's constantly rising all the way through 2019. And now, of course, it's hugely rising again. We're going right yeah. back to those Frank Capra movies, like It's a Wonderful Life and Mr. Smith goes, those huge Victorian rambler homes with several generations living together. Only today they're in mansions, you know, <laughs> that's the difference. Yeah. Uh, but, but how much of that is a, is, a, is a question of affordability, though, and how much of it is, is that bond well, between the, the generations? That's my point. The fact that it never changed throughout the recovery. We constantly had right. that. And, and, I, and as for affordability, you know, I often, I often give the, again, counter-historical example. 1982-83 was one of the most severe recessions, um, um, you know, in, in post-war history. It was actually... You know, we had unemployment rate peaking, I think, over 10%. That used to be considered a high number of grant. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, but anyway. Two weeks ago, right. Uh, it, it, was, it, was a, it was a very bad period, right? The beginning of the Reagan administration. And, and uh, I often ask people, how many boomers facing, you know, young adult and boomers? By that time, a lot of them were in the workforce. How many of them went home to live with their parents? I, I never heard that ever happening, right? That's the difference, right? Um, and with, with, in the 90s, we began to hear of, you know, Generation X with the whole boomerang thing. You know, they went out of the economy, couldn't make it, they boomeranged back home. You know? So that was the beginning of, of, of the, just the beginning of the idea of larger households. Uh, but today, um, a lot of millennials don't boomerang, they just never move out. <laughs> you know, it's a little different. Right, right. Um, so, but the, this is very interesting, and it's powerful, and much of this is very positive. What millennials don't trust, although they're very close to their boomer parents personally, they don't trust boomers to run anything, right? Right. And, and that's the difference. So, so when, when, when you look at the, the millennial mindset, um, do you think that this experience is going to change that? And, and if so, how is it going to change things? Because they're obviously... This is, as I said, this is the first sense of kind of mortality, even though it's not 
mortality for them, but they're, they're probably starting, some of them seeing parents or grandparents get sick and some die, unfortunately. Does this change? Does this shift the fourth turning? Does it change its path? I mean, I guess it's too strong a force to, to abrogate it, but does it put it on a slightly different path? Do you think? I think it just accelerates it. And, and, and okay. you know, that acceleration is something we always see in a fourth turning. In fact, we always, even back in generations, we predicted that the year 2020 would be an accelerator year. <laughs> you know, that right. the last decade of this, of this period would be when most of the action happens. Um, you know, we saw 2008, 2009, which is very hard for the first wave of millennials. It was hard for a lot of Xers too, you know, speaking of young people. Uh, but then this is catching them roughly 10 years later, both out of high school, out of college. Um, I think it, it helps to continue to radicalize this generation in terms of pursuing uh, even very extreme policy solutions as long as they have a leader. Remember, millennials are a, um, are a, um, uh, a generation of followers. <laughs> They're looking for a leader to tell them. You know, this is the great attraction for some, particularly a, a, a leader who has a very big vision, a very aggressive vision of national community. It's one of the reasons why Bernie Sanders is so popular, right? Yeah. Uh, because he had a very aggressive vision of what the community could do, a much more powerful vision of the connection between, uh, you know, citizen and state. Uh, crises always empower the state, Grant, as you know. That's just a rule of yeah. history. Yeah. Um, and, and that was one of the reasons why the original GI generation became so attached to government during the, the era of the New Deal, the Great Depression, the huge union movement, and then World War II. I mean, that was, the, that was a heyday for vast government activity. And ever afterward, the GI generation remained associated with that very, uh, 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 very strong idea of what citizenship meant and what it entailed. Um, I think this is the opportunity for, for from millennials. I, what happens is, is that of course, boomers and Xers really having not much in the way of civic instincts, allow the system to break down, sort of encourage the sense of just continuing crisis and, 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 and a sense of almost hopeless declinism, unless someone really takes charge. And millennials are the one who finally finds a leader and goes with something, right? Goes with some new national solution. The tools are all there. I mean, look at what Congress is doing. Look at what the Fed is doing. We're all becoming words of the state. <laughs> I mean, it's already happening yeah. despite the fact that boomers and Xers never wanted government to exercise this power, but it's almost like by default, it's suddenly there. Someone has to think about, well, how are we gonna mastermind this? How are we gonna orchestrate this? How are we gonna actually use this to actually bring the country together? Or are we just all gonna be kind of welfare drones, right? In a, in a completely yeah. aimless state. I think the whole idea of industrial policy, for instance, is growing even among conservatives. I mean, you see a number of voices now in the Senate uh, and among uh, uh, governors on the, on the Republican side. I think actually, I think a lot of Republicans are beginning to hedge their bets on Trump and beginning to, you know, you see it with people like Senator Marco Rubio, for example, or Lindsey Graham yeah. and a number of others are sort of beginning to develop a somewhat separate uh, kind of more Tory conservatism or, you know, something a little bit yeah. more with a, with a real government role, a real more edge to it uh, that would be sort of have a populist edge, but also would be sort of, you know, tough minded in a way that Democrats aren't trying to def uh, have a new 
more civic definition of the Republican Party. And, and clearly the, the, the Democrats are kind of going crazy. The problem with, the, with both parties, though, is that they really haven't managed to generate a, a leader that is really fit for the time. Um, you know, and, and, you know, Trump clearly is not it uh, in, in kind of what he has become. Uh, I wouldn't have necessarily predicted that at first, but he seems to be continually shying away from wanting to be that kind of leader. And it, I think maybe just on, you know, constitutionally impossible for him. Yeah. But I think on the Democratic side, it's particularly um, uh, unfortunate that they finally settled on this lowest common denominator, <laughs> you know, sleepy Joe Biden, and yeah. no one is enthusiastic about it, least of all millennials. But the polls indicate that millennials will nonetheless all vote for him <laughs> yep. just because, you know, he at least represents a better overall yeah. philosophy. Uh, 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 obviously, you know, given given Joe Biden's condition, his age, and so on, his choice of vice president, I think is widely regarded as extremely important. That'll probably happen yeah. in late June, early July. Uh, we'll know who that is. Um, but a lot can happen. You know, uh, I wouldn't even be absolutely yeah. certain, frankly, that Joe Biden will be the nominee, believe it or not. I think we may still see some fireworks there, some interventions on the Democratic side. I think the Democrats realize that almost, there are probably a half a dozen uh, Democratic governors right now who yeah, would easily make a better candidate against Trump than, than Joe. Yeah, we'll see. You know, when you, when you talked about um, the COVID being accelerant uh, towards this, this last decade of, of the fourth turning, um, talk a little bit about what, because in history, not always, but many times, that, that fourth turning ends up in conflict, in major conflict. Um, that's something that for many years has been thought, you know, kind of unlikely to happen. So talk a little bit about what this accelerant brings forward towards us and, and whether well, you it's get, uh, unavoidable. What, what happens is you get this, this growing sense of what we can do as a community, right? You start locking people down, you have strategies, you begin to set up barriers. You know, communities are defined by their borders, right? Almost by definition, a tight community is a community with borders, right? Yeah. And, and certainly the, the, the pandemic is doing that. Um, and this, this whole sense about community having a greater sense of mission, we're all dependent now on government income, so we all sense have to do something to get out of this condition or, or, or shape this condition. We're all almost, uh, uh, even if we're unwillingly forced to realize that we all have, we are all playing a civic role at this point. We can't just pretend we're just a bunch of, you know, individuals on a, on, on sort of a happy meadow, <laughs> just, you know, in, engaged in parallel play. You know, there, there is now this idea of community. And I think that the lessons of fourth turning is this idea of emergency and community become more pressing. It begins to uh, influence our thinking about other issues, for instance, toward other countries. I'm very worried right now, and other countries are going through this same fourth turning process. Yeah. You look at China right now. Well, they're now using this to not just crack down on the Uyghurs and so on, but Hong Kong, that's latest in the news. Uh, I, this actually the most recent thing that worries me because I think that both the Democrats and the Republicans may actually compete with each other to issue yeah. crackdown sanctions on China. I think that's the next trigger point. And you can see where that's going. I would say the relationships between the United States and China are already the worst since 
since you know Kissinger, you know, engineered yeah, so the yeah, yeah. And 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 I think but but what happens in fourth turnings is that you start with a lot of little problems, and then as everything gets worse, it all becomes one big problem. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It all becomes like one giant thing that's solved in one giant struggle. You remember the the problems of the nineteen thirties, you know, we had we had authoritarian, you know, populists, we call them fascists abroad. Uh, we had uh, trade disagreements and tariffs. We had a, 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 a economy with insufficient demand. We had a lot of poor people. We had, we had all these different problems. We had a lost generation people feared or growing up. Well, in World War II, that yeah. just became one yeah. problem, right? And if we got through that one problem successfully, we would solve all the problems on the yeah. other side. And we did. Bretton Woods, IMF. The United Nations, the World Bank, you know, we had, we suddenly dollar exchange stand. We just, we had everything. We had suddenly programs in place to keep everyone employed. We, we completely redesigned the relationship of government and the economy, redesigned America's relationship with the world, redesigned mankind's relationship with science. Everything had shifted and you could not possibly have predicted. I often ask people, they think you know, they know where we're going at 15, 20 years. And I happen to ask them, if you were back in the time of the Scopes trial, say 1925, <laughs> the sleepy yeah. days of 19, when we yeah, still right. had, you know, cavalry in, the, you know, in, in America. Uh, and, you know, I think, you know, George Patton may have been happy about that. Well, he, would, <laughs> he had discovered the tank uh, during World War I. But um, who would have imagined from the vantage point, tiny government, sort of a sleepy America, an industrial dynamo, but still in terms of, of civic life, we were a, um, um, uh, we, we had no self-awareness of yeah. what we could be. Who could have imagined looking 20 years ahead from 1925 to 1945, right? And how transformed we would be largely through the impact that would add of that greatest generation, you know, that uh, we talk about who came of age, you know, with a lot of them became union leaders a large share of them, interestingly, became communists. We forget that. You know, people yeah, bl yeah. people complain about millennials. Uh, at least a, a large share of their best and brightest aren't actually joining an organization committed to the destruction of the United States. <laughs> I, I should say people should tone down their criticism of millennials. <laughs> no, I, I'm with you. I'm with you. You know, you touched on China there, and and that was one of the questions I wanted to get to. Is is this how the fourth turning plays out in in different countries around the world because obviously that we've seen at the leadership level um in china particularly we've got leaders similar in nature i don't want to put them together but they're similar in nature and you know strong man kind of authoritarian leaders um but at, but at a citizen level you would think that um it would be tough to compare generations in China, for example, with the U.S., because their life has been completely different in China. So how, how does the well, fourth turning play out in China? In some very broad aspects, there are similarities, which is why we think that actually since the 1930s and 40s, there's been a broad um, overlap of generational types uh, in East Asia, Europe, and the entire English-speaking world. And that is, we all had a Great Depression. We all had World War II. Um, and in the 1960s and on into the 1970s for many countries, we all had an awakening. Yeah. You know, in China, this was the Cultural Revolution. And by the way, uh, uh, you know, Xi Jinping is a member of that generation. Yeah. He was one of the sent down. 
Uh, and, and this was a time at which these, these grandchildren of Mao raged against, you know, the Confucian, uh, uh, 2,000 years of Confucian tradition and tried everything they could to destroy it, which is why, you know, every time I go to China, and I've been there several times, and, you know, they always take you around to see ancient Chinese artifacts. Right. <laughs> well, there are none. They're, they're all created in little curio shops. All the ancient, genuine ancient ones have either been destroyed or they've been put away somewhere really yeah. safe. Uh, but anyway, that was the impact of that. It was, it was, a, it was a 1960s um, on steroids. You know, it was, it was incredible. It was violent in a way that it, it was generationally violent, uh, meaning young people against older people raging against them in a way that uh, makes the 60s in the United States look tame. But you had the 60s. Uh, the late 60s and 70s in, in, in Europe, and I know, Grant, you're familiar with this, you know, Les Soissons-Huitards, the Achtensechsiger, the, the Weidermannhof gang, the Red Brigade, you know, we yeah. had the whole yeah, awakening yeah. thing there. And, and so we have similar kinds of generations. The problem with Europe right now is that the generation that did most to um, uh, cement and expand uh, the European Union, you know, what I call the generation of Jacques Delors, you know, sort of born in the late 20s and 1930s, who remember World War II as children, uh, are all gone now. Yeah. I mean, they were the ones who wanted a strong European Union filled with committees and flowcharts, you know, just to diffuse, yeah. <laughs> to diffuse a lot of tech, technical experts over here, sort of to diffuse any, any um, aggressiveness or animosity, you know, channel everyone toward uh, la, la douce commerce, you know, the, yeah. the, the peaceful commerce, right? We'll all just get rich instead and we won't fight each other anymore. Well, this is now changing. Even the boomers are beginning to fade as a generation and all the leaders of these more Euroskeptic movements, you know, from, um, from UKIP to Alternative for Deutschland to Vox in Spain to, um, you know, Matteo Salvini's movement. Yeah. You just go around. They're all younger. You know, they're all Xers. Uh, they're about a half generation younger than the, the Eurocrats sitting in Strasbourg and Brussels. So again, you see history turning, yeah. history turning. And, and the problem with Europe now is it has to forge a new kind of more powerful civic identity, but it, because it has no fiscal union, it can't really do it as a group. And so little entities within it are threatening to split off. And, and it'll happen first, as you know, in, in, in Southern Europe. I mean, that's the yeah. first danger is going to be, I mean, poor Greece. I mean, it already had a lost decade just emerging and getting hammered hmm. again. Just, just look at the uh, market prices, you know, look at the yeah. Greek ETF. Uh, it's going into another lost decade. Are you kidding? What if they had gone to the drachma, you know, back in, uh, I don't know, yeah. 2010? Tell me, uh, that might have been worse for the Greek elites who owned a lot of Euro assets, but it might have been much better for the country. So a yeah. lot of these lessons, I think, are, are, are going to come home. I think in this next round with Europe, you know, as opposed to the first round, this one isn't going to be stopped by, um, you know, Christine Lagarde saying whatever it takes. I think it's yeah. going beyond that now. It, it, that's, that's a really interesting point um, that you made there about Greece, because you're right. I mean, it, it's it's interesting that no one's actually come forward. They, they don't seem to want to put this 
um, problem to the to the masses in a financial setting. It's always really populism and governments not looking forward, not, not, not looking out for you. Well, you but have that simple example of the drachma is a perfect one to. to you put have to a people. new technocrat in power. Uh, you yep. know, they finally went for a technocrat, yep. um, and and he's been pretty good in his. Uh, in his containment policies, you know, his, his policies against the pandemic have been actually pretty good, but it's not going to save the country economically no. and financially, unfortunately. Well, I, I want to get to some of the questions because they, they lend themselves to expansive answers. I want to make sure you've got plenty of time to, to talk through. The, the first one I'll ask you, which, which is a great one that came in early from, from Brian Smith, um, and he talks about how, generally speaking, the leadership in the world today seems to be more childish than adult in, in, in terms of wanting not necessarily to do what's right, but what's easy. So it feels like we're being led by children as opposed to adults. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think, uh, you know, look, I, I think from that point of view, a lot of millennials would agree. Right. <laughs> I mean, I, I, it, it does seem as though we have leaders who have no idea and, and, and who actually don't have any idea what a real crisis is like and what it takes. Again, this is generational memory. They don't remember anything like that. Again, the problem for boomers is, this is a coming of age truth, is that government does too much. Yeah. Remember, and, and how many boomers decided finally, after some hesitation, to vote for Reagan in 1980 and 1984, when Reagan said, the problem is government, right? And, and so, so the, the, the protest against uh, uh, social discipline and social restrictions in the culture, which started on college campuses, finally moved to government. And government was also gonna cut taxes, cut regulation. We we're gonna become a very lightly governed, almost libertarian nation. And, and I think a lot of boomers became used to that in the 80s and 90s. Uh, uh, and, and Xers even more so, because they don't even remember what came before it, right? I mean, Xers are just kids. So, so that's what they were used to. The solution to everything was always cut down any direction from the top. Whatever yeah. the problem, that was the answer. You know, and that so, was, yeah. So you, you and I spoke about this um, in Washington um, when we last met, this, this idea of um, the, the kind of the, the, the crises that generations go through shape their adult lives, uh, the Great Depression being the perfect example. And, and someone, uh, Collins, put a question here talking about what that did to a generation that absolutely repudiated having any debt. Uh, here, you know, we, after 2008, you would expect people to, uh, millennials, to maybe not be interested in the stock market. We've seen a big crash in the stock market, which you would think might put them off investing in the stock market. But instead, what we've seen, if you look at Robinhood, is this massive inrush into gambling and punting around in the stock market like a casino. What do you, what's your take on that? Yeah, I've, I've had some interesting, um, you know, uh, Twitter comments on this. It's like, you know, uh, all these millennials are investing in, uh, in um, you know, cryptocurrencies and Tesla and, yeah. and, and now in the, you know, the, the, the bounce, right? Investing in the bounce. Uh, and some of the comments are like, you know, only millennials would do this, you know, Xers would have seen this right. coming a mile away, you know, <laughs> you know never would have done this. Uh, and that's just, that's just youth, you know. Um, uh, I, I do think that 
However, millennials are in look, I mean, millennials don't have a lot of assets to invest. I mean, they none of the money being driven now into or out of the stock market is, is, is really being driven by the millennial generation. This is a generation with, even at their current age, record low assets, right? In terms of net worth, uh, it's still overwhelmingly driven by not even oh, so much Xers. Boomers and silent generation, they're driving the assets. Xers kind of, yeah, to some extent. Millennials, it's just not happening, right? So they're not driving this market. I think the big danger for me is uh, remember, just because we're in a fourth turning or a crisis doesn't mean we'll have a successful outcome. And one, one problem is, is all of our efforts to short circuit the fourth turning or search, uh, short circuit a crisis. You know, keep the S&P high at all costs, right, Grant? I mean, yeah, I've never right. seen Congress and the Fed so absolutely dedicated to making sure that the market stays high. I mean, it's incredible to me. Yeah. I mean, if, if I were the Democratic Party, that's all I would be talking about. And to some extent, they're beginning to catch on to that, you know, being the message. But it's amazing to me, the, the, the nightmare or the, the, the dysfunctional outcome of a fourth turning to me is a S&P that never declines, uh, a interest rate, a real interest rate that means ultra low, uh, debt that can balloon indefinitely because interest rates remain at zero, right? So there's no cost, there's no debt service cost. Yeah. But of course, what that means is your economy will never grow again, <laughs> right? Yeah, no, exactly right. So, so here what you have, you have all the S&P incumbents even more powerful than before. Their market power has increased. All their competitors have been vanquished. They no longer have any, uh, you know, bargaining comp you know, bargaining power from labor, so they can, you know, enhance, you know, increase their profit margins again. They have pricing power. They have pricing power over products increasingly because they're increasingly becoming concentrated. They have pricing power over workers. Uh, and we have, you know, maybe, I don't know, these big tech stocks, you know, maybe the top 10 will be 25% of the S&P, right? And, yeah. and they will do fine, and we will have this no growth, very low dynamism economy, ruled by incumbents in a two-tier interest rate market, meaning there will be one level of interest rate that applies to the big corporations, because they got the incumbency, they got all the profits, and then outside of that, yeah, it'll be zero <laughs> yeah. because there'll be no competition. I think we already saw that during the recovery. And this was what I thought Larry Summers uh, correctly pointed this. I don't agree with a lot of what Larry Summers says, but I agreed with this one. He says, it's interesting, isn't it, that you have real interest rates going to zero, um, very high rates of return on, on S&P corporate capital, either replacement rate or market value, right? And yet very little new investment. He said, how do you explain that? How do you explain next to zero real rates on interest, no investment, and yet very high rates of return on existing corporate capital? And the reason is incumbency. There's no competing with those companies. Yeah. And, and I think that to me is the biggest threat because it's a threat to capitalism. I mean, I'm, I'm a capitalist. I mean, I believe in capitalism. I believe in markets. I believe that actually the function of government is to save capitalism. And right now, capitalism is in danger because this isn't capitalism. This is kind of a crony capitalism, which will give no entry point for new inventors, for new innovation. New innovation requires that incumbents fall. They're not being allowed to fall right now. 
That's my biggest yeah. problem. And in the near term, I think an additional problem, systemic problem is, I think in the next couple of months, we're going to see deflation. But I think afterwards, once we begin to sort of, you know, have some sort of recovery, I think suddenly you're going to see inflation for the first time become a problem. Uh, and that's because no one is orchestrating any of the pieces of that, you know, we're constricting supply with unemployment benefits. We're, we're, we're doing other things with our, with keeping all the corporations afloat. Uh, we're doing various things to keep supply low and to increase demand, hold everyone harmless in a world where we're all actually have to take a hit. Well, too much demand chasing too few products, you know, ultimately, that's what you got. We've we've seen that movie before. So so let's come on to to markets because markets have um, become seriously disconnected from an economic reality that gets more stark by the day. Every data release that comes out is is worse. So how do you think about um, positioning a portfolio in these times for an inflationary outcome? Um, because obviously you have the boomers who are heavily invested in the equity markets, the millennials, not so much. How do you think about structuring a portfolio for these times? Well, that's exceedingly difficult in a fourth yeah, turning. Yeah, no, absolutely it is. You know, because history is contingent, particularly in a fourth turning. It can go either way. I would say long term, I would say short term, I would bet on deflation. I would say long term, I would bet on inflation. If you held a revolver to my head, you know, that's what I would say. Um, I think that the um, the S and P is 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 fragile. You know, I do expect it to finally come to terms with the loss of demand and and the loss of incumbent players. I'm going to. I think that over the next couple of months, we're going to see increasing numbers of of um, you know insolvency, mergers, bankruptcies, and so on. Uh, and and we're going to see the end of government bailouts. Actually, this is, I think, the new loggerheads between the Republican Democratic Party. No one can agree on stimulus five. Well, right now we have an economy that's basically a, a car rushing off a long pier <laughs> or yeah. wharf. And what happens at the end of July when all the unemployment, you know, uh, extra federal benefits run out, uh, actually toward middle of June when a lot of the PP will, PPP will start running out, uh, uh, the end of June, when all the state and fiscal governments start the new fiscal year, you have to start, you know, just firing people because they have no aid, and the Democrat and Republican, uh, the Democrats and the Republican Party can't come together, and that might be uh, a real wake-up point for the market uh, because obviously, I mean, the, the Republicans have a good point. You can't just keep <laughs> creating new debt. I mean, we've gone up like 30 percentage points in uh, America's you know, public debt to GDP ratio just in the last few months. Uh, you can't keep doing that indefinitely and ever hope to have healthy interest rates again. See, that, I keep coming back to that. The only way in which the debt becomes manageable is if we never grow again. Right. It's a exactly little bit right. like a Japan scenario. You're almost guaranteeing the only way we can be successful is a Japan scenario. No. You want interest rates to be high again. You want that debt to be unaffordable. That's the sign of a healthy economy. And if you don't have that, you're screwed. So I, I, I consider that almost the box the Fed is getting us in. But, they, but they've been, I mean, they've been building that cage around themselves for 25, 30 years. I agree. Are, are we, and each, are we, are we at the end each part of that cage seems so logical. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. That's the yeah. problem. It's, it's like putting flat pack furniture together from Ikea, right? But uh, you, you get to the end and there's one screw missing. And then... <laughs> And that, but 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 is that 
is that what this crisis now represents? Is that we have reached the part where they're going to finally put the last piece of that boxing place and go, oh crap, we're, we're yeah, I, I painted myself into this little corner yeah. now. What do I do? Right? Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I think that is, and and obviously when it comes to debt and inflation and and insolvency, all three of those things, that's kind of a moment of truth. Uh, you know, once once people start going insolvent, you know, then the collateral becomes a problem, and everyone becomes aware of that. And then when you you know, inflation is the one thing the Fed fears, you know, because if it actually happens, they're, they're almost compelled to change policy. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and interest rates. Um, I, and I think, though, that the dysfunction, which will be politically caused, in other words, the, the two political parties failing to agree will actually, you know, cause this, um, break to happen, you know, in the markets. Um, but there's no question, you know, the, the, the biggest question people ask me all the time, I know it's, it, they must have asked you, it must be a constant question here is, you know, why is it that the economy is so much worse relative to earlier turndowns and yet the market has hardly yeah. reacted relative to earlier turndowns? Uh, is it, is, you know, is that sustainable? Is that gonna last? And, and I agree, that's right now a huge question. Well, there's, there's, I've had a, a several questions um, about populism. Um, and even though they were all asked by the same guy, I'm going to allow it because um, I'm curious about this too. But uh, where does populism fit into the fourth turning? Uh, is, that, is that a common feature of that? And, and what are your thoughts on this populist movement? Where is it in its ascendancy and does it end with it, populist it's, empowerment? It's, it's huge in the fourth turning. I mean, you go back and... Um, uh, uh, in the 1930s, you know, Father Coughlin and Huey Long and, you know, uh, FDR, we forget that now, but FDR, when he was uh, tooling up for the, the election of 1936, was most afraid on his left, you know, right. and it was a good thing that Huey Long got assassinated because he was really worried. Uh, even if he, Huey Long didn't win, he could have a separate party, split the vote and have a Republican come, you know, so there are a lot of things that really had him worried. They're all on the left, believe it or not. Yeah. So even though to Republicans during the 1930s, you know, F Franklin Delano Roosevelt was just referred to as that man. They couldn't even bring themselves to actually pronounce his name. He was just that man uh, and considered a radical. He had a lot of huge company, you know, the Townsend movement. I mean, you can go down. There's just a lot of competition on the left. Um, and look around the rest of the world in the 1930s. I mean, it was a heyday of populism, particularly on the right, which is why fascism took over so many of these countries. And I think we have that today. You see that in uh, uh, South Asia, East Asia. You see that rising in Europe. You see that, um, I don't know, you, you see that everywhere in the world. You see yeah. that in South America. Look at AMLO in Mexico. Look at Jair Bolsonaro. You know, I have a new uh, a Bolsonaro copycat now in Uruguay. Uh, you know, I have one in Bolivia, you know. Falsonero. We call him Falsonero. Yeah, we'll call him Falsonero. Yes, exactly. Well, uh, this is, uh, you know, talk about a uh, completely dysfunctional response to the to COVID-19. Yeah. Um, there you have it in Brazil. Brazil, which is actually rising quickly to the top in numbers of new cases and new deaths. Yeah. Um, we're almost out of time. One last question that, that caught my eye in the, in the questions, Kim, and that is the U.S. and um, potential for secession. I mean, things have kind of quietened down a lot now, but three or four weeks ago, 
you could feel the, the tension rising in places like Texas, for example, which is always the first place that's going to happen. Um, but is, 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 is the Republic under threat at all by this? You know, uh, it's, that's a question that's commonly asked. Uh, I've been asked, uh, I've done a lot of consulting for the military, and believe it or not, they asked for that. The, the yeah, Marine sure. Corps has asked me that question. I've had generals sure. in the Marine Corps ask me that question. They say, remember what ticked off the Civil War. It's very interesting, actually, the particulars that ticked off the Civil War. Um, when the Confederacy was announced in many of these southern states, and it quickly spread, uh, after the election of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, typically, the federal government had all kinds of things in those states. You know, we had post offices and forts and harbors and yeah. and, and typically what happened is all these uh, federal leaders just say, oh, well, you know, I'll take down my flag and thank you very much. And the Confederates were very, you know, generous and gentlemanly, you know, you know and, and they just, come, you know, meekly walked away and took the train back to Washington or wherever. But there was this crazy bastard in Fort Sumter and he said, I took an oath to the yeah. Constitution, you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm West Point, you know, I took an oath, and hell if I'm going to take my flag down. And that's, as we all know, that started the war. I've been asked by people, you know, the, the, the Marine Corps has all kinds of bases out in Coronado, <laughs> yeah. down in San Diego, and they've actually asked me, what do we do? Uh, you know, what do we do? What's the likelihood of that happening? I mean, they actually think about that, right? If I had to choose, where would I choose? You know, what would happen? Uh, I think that uh, realistically, just given the temperaments on the, you know, blue zone, red zone divide, I've always thought the idea of, of, of secession as being a, um, a true national problem is probably more likely if the red zone is on the losing side of the national right. election, right? I, I just don't think that's gonna, because the blue zone always feels they have a right, you know, they, they always feel wed to the whole idea of, a, of an American Republic, you know. It's, interestingly, the blue zone is kind of what Abraham Lincoln was, you know, yeah. the original Republican party uh, back in the Civil War, you know, union before all, you know, let's just start with that premise. Now let's decide how we're gonna do it, but secession out of the question. Uh, whereas obviously the Democrats, a lot of Democrats in the South said, no, no, we should be allowed to, you know, leave in peace. Uh, I think it's going to be reversed this time. I think the Republicans will be, if, if it happens, I think that was actually more of a possibility if, if Hillary Clinton had won uh, in 2016. Uh, one thing you saw that was very interesting, I followed the uh, survival industry very closely. You know, the gun industry, survival industry, yeah, yeah. you know, everyone with their, you know, uh, you know gear. Uh, and it just took a complete dive after Trump won. <laughs> I mean, yeah. suddenly the whole industry was flattened. It's like no one was interested anymore because suddenly the possibility, right, had, had Trump was in power now. You know, we wouldn't have to secede. We wouldn't have to form our own communities. It's very interesting to look at 2020, right? I think that would really depend. I think if the Democrats win, particularly if the Democrats win uh, uh, with a win in the Senate, which mm -hmm. now looks completely in play, uh, to, to my mind, uh, you will suddenly see that again uh, on the table. You know, what if in Idaho or Texas or wherever, uh, Mississippi or someplace, they said, to hell with you. You know, uh, we're, we're not going to follow that regulation. We're not going to, you know, give you the tax money for that purpose. And then suddenly it's on the table again. I would not put that beyond the bounds of imagination.
Interesting. Well, just just before we close, um, a, a, a question that was asked earlier on: uh, Are you writing another book? If so, what, what's it about, and when's it going to be published? And also, what are you reading at the moment? Ah, uh, the answer is uh, yes. Um, I'm. Uh, I am uh, doing a proposal right now. So my agent has been pursuing me uh, and basically calling me about every two weeks, you know, urging me to do it. I, I keep telling him I'm really busy. Uh, you know, I, I do this, I do this COVID call every week. I, I you know, I, I got a lot on my plate and he kept on saying, you know, this is the moment, you know, you got it. Right. So I, I will do a book, which is um, um, basically taking people to the next stage, you know, how does the fourth turning end? What will be beyond it? Uh, bringing people up to date uh, generationally, and I think at the same time I may do a sequel, which is something I've and a work of love I want to do for a long time, which is actually an updated uh, version of generations. You know, the mm -hmm. whole history, taking all the generations up to where they are now, um, sort of the long march. You know, the the great panorama. Yes. Uh, because been I, taken. I, I really, I'm an historian first before I'm an economist. And I, I love that story. And just to, to bring it all the way up to date, um, you know, is, is a favorite for me. Um, I, I tell you the books I'm enjoying reading now, and it's probably because I do a, a weekly COVID call, um, is going back and reading books on uh, epidemics and pandemics. Mm -hmm. um, a great favorite for me was William McNeil you know, plagues and peoples, you yeah. know, along with, um, you know, Jared Diamond, I think, you know, introduced a lot of boomers to this subject. I think a lot of Xers are introduced by Jared Diamond, guns, germs, and steel. Um, but one thing, and I'll just maybe close with this thought. Um, people ask me, well, is a pandemic, you know, part of the fourth turning cycle? And, and obviously the answer is no, because, you know, a pandemic is just one thing that can happen. Uh, that can uh, uh, take inst take weak institutions to the breaking point, right? Maybe that's the best way to say it. But there is an, an element of pandemics which actually does suggest a rhythm in history. And William McNeil pointed that out. Uh, this, by the way, is a book you can get. It's it's an absolute classic. Uh, great historian from University of Chicago. I believe it's 1977. And he pointed out accurately, I think, that all of the great pandemics in history, the great plagues, always follow long eras of increasing population growth and openness. And if you look at the plague of the Antonines, which was one of the, you know, late second century AD, uh, which was the first kind of demographic blow in, in, in the Western Roman Empire, it occurred after Rome, it like opened up all of the empire, you could go from London all the way to India, yeah. you know, across the, across the uh, Indian Ocean, and suddenly we had this huge commerce, right? All this openness. You look at the bubonic plague, you know, the Great Plague, uh, uh, 1347 to, you know, the early 1350s. That was after the, the, the Mongols had opened up the steppes. And so that Marco Polo could travel, you know, from Venice all the way to Cathay yeah. and back. And suddenly, and, and actually, that was the route that the, that the, the fleas and the rats followed, you know, back across the steps. You look at the, the Spanish influenza at the end of that entire century of increasing global openness, and finally, World War I, which basically took people all over the world and mixed them together. But here's my point, is that periods of great openness in history and increasing openness and increasing uh, mixing of people from all over, 
are incredibly innovative um, for, for, uh, for business, for technology, uh, for new ways of living. But one thing we forget, they're also very innovative for pathogens. <laughs> <You know? Yeah. laughs> they too get to experiment and mix in new ways, right? Uh, and that really is a lesson of history, is that, and, and, and by the way, the, the Spanish influenza, uh, which, you know, lasted for 18 months. I mean, it lasted, you know, early in 18 and went all the way into sort of June of, 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 of 1919, set the tone for the huge immigration restrictions of the early 1920s and the mood of isolationism and uh, 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 xenophobia not only in America, but in much of the world, and ultimately set the mood for the rise of fascism. Uh, that really was the closing note, I think, on the image that everyone had of World War I. It was probably that everyone would, you know, hated the idea of, of, of globalism, which was represented by the struggle of World War I and Wilson's vision after it. But it was also the Spanish influenza. Uh, and it just made people a lot more um, negative about openness. And um, I think that's something we have to remember too, is that when we look at pandemics in a long-term historical view, uh, we see that they often uh, represent turning points in openness to closeness yeah. uh, um, in, in sort of global community life. Well, Neil, it's been a fascinating hour. Thank you so much for, for giving it to us and allowing us inside that ridiculously large brain of yours. Uh, it's always a pleasure to get chance to chat to you hopefully we can do it in person again soon yes absolutely grant it was a pleasure i'll bring the coffee all right thanks again okay. my friend take care <laughs> stay well out there you too right. bye-bye bye well thank you everybody um that's the end of another week of these things um i've had a ball as i always do talking to these people they're all just uh so nice and so smart and it's just great to be able to pick different people's brains at a time like this um in the meantime my thanks to neil for giving us an hour of his time. My thanks to you for joining me uh, and I hope to see many of you soon. Thanks so much, goodbye.